Our text for today is going to be not one we get into a whole lot. Nehemiah chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at most of that chapter, the first 31 verses. So it's page 480 of your Bibles. You're going to need to open those up. Um, it'll probably be helpful to follow along, and it's not printed in your bulletin. So um, hopefully everyone has a Bible. If not, share one with somebody next to you. Page 480, unless you're pretty used to where Nehemiah is in your Bible. That's where we're going to be today. God's people screwed up. They, they stubbornly turned their backs on God. We saw, that in, we saw that in our readings today. Hopefully that was a nice recap what has happened over the last few hundred years. They stubbornly turned their backs on God. They refused to listen. And so as promised, in 722 B.C., God uh, used the Assyrians to come and haul away the northern kingdom of Israel for good, exactly like uh, the prophets said that he was going to. And you think that would have been enough to lead the southern nation of Judah to smarten up a little bit because their prophets were saying that the same exact thing was going to happen to them and they just had seen it like a generation ago happen. But it didn't help them smarten up at all. They did the same thing. And so in 586 B.C., there were a couple deportations starting in like 612, but in 586 B.C., God used the Babylonians to come and now haul off the southern kingdom of Judah into exile, into captivity, just like the prophets said. This once proud people now were, were forced to see with their eyes what they had refused to believe in their hearts. And that is that God is serious when he says that I will not give my glory to another. But God did not abandon his people. He is also a gracious and merciful God. So while his people were in exile in Babylon, God sent prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel to call those people back to repentance, to remind them of his promises, to bring a remnant of those people back to their promised land after 70 years. And then, just as he promised through Jeremiah, 70 years later, God used the Persian king Cyrus, because now Persia had taken over from Babylon, so the people were in captivity in Babylon, but at some point the Persian uh, nation drove out the Babylonians, so now they, were, they had charge of, of the, uh, the Israelites. So God used now, 70 years later, the Persian king Cyrus to bring his people back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So under leaders like Ezra, the priest, Haggai, the prophet, Zerubbabel, the governor, they go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. Now, it was not quite the temple that Solomon built, but it was a reminder that God keeps his promises. The walls of Jerusalem, however, had lay in ruins ever since 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar knocked them down, entered the city, burned the temple, and carried all but the poorest people away to Babylon. So now that they were back, Ezra attempted to rebuild the walls, but the project never got off the ground because of all the pressure and opposition from the surrounding enemies. So the people of Jerusalem were discouraged and they were unable to protect themselves. And, and hope was very faint that things would improve. But a thousand miles away, 
in the citadel of Susa, which, is, which would have been right in Babylon, but now Persia. thousand miles away in the citadel of Susa, an Israelite was still serving as cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. His name was Nehemiah, meaning the Lord comforts. And God put into his heart, into Nehemiah's heart, a concern for his people. He, he was given the message, and, and when he heard, when Nehemiah heard that Jerusalem was still broken down and those walls of Jerusalem were still lying in ruins, he, it bothered him. So much so that he got the courage to bring it up to King Artaxerxes, which was, if you've read the book of Esther, a very dangerous thing to do. And so after spending a lot of time in prayer, he approached King Artaxerxes and requested, asked permission to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Talk about God answering prayer. Not only did King Artaxerxes give him permission, he also helped him finance the project. So Nehemiah then traveled back to Jerusalem and he became the leader that God used, the, the, the exact leader those people needed to get those walls rebuilt under tremendous opposition from the forces around them. And they completed the wall in 52 days. So then once it was done, all the people gathered to worship and praise God. All right, this was their no-excuse Sunday. They were all there to worship and praise God. Ezra, the priest, read the Bible to the people, and they all began to understand the Bible now for the first time, truly understand it. And uh, faith was strengthened. Joy returned. And Nehemiah, it, when you read on, you read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah encouraged the people to, to celebrate with great joy. I mean, God's people had been now regathered as promised. The, uh, a place had been built for God's name once again. And now the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt so that the people of God would be protected. So that from this faithful remnant of people, a Savior yet to be born would come into this world to pay for all of our sins and to prepare a place where the walls will never again be broken down and a place where the people of God will never again be scattered. Jesus was still coming. God is faithful even when we aren't. They responded with confession and worship. So confessing their sins, uh, their failures, and notice, confessing the failures of their fathers that they had taken on as their own. You know how we do that, right? You know, we, the, the failures of our parents kind of become ours. We kind of take on the same uh, weaknesses often and follow the same destructive patterns. And that's what had happened with them all the way through. So they're confessing their sins, the sins of their fathers that had become their own. And then they began worshiping God for the faithfulness. So you see confession and worship here. Follow along. Here we go on uh, the first five verses. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession 
and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. So they begin confessing sins, and then they worship God. And finally, what they're going to do is they're going to offer up this huge, what is really a psalm of confession and worship. All right? And and what we're going to see through this whole chapter in this kind of psalm of worship that they offer up to God, we're going to see confession, we're going to see worship, and the theme that runs through the whole thing is a contrast of their continual unfaithfulness with the constant faithfulness of God. So it's a contrast of their unfaithfulness with the continual faithfulness of God. So, uh, verses uh, 5 and 6, they begin, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you so just just looking at this for a second there is not a god of the sky there is not a god of the sea there is not a god of the land there is one god and he is god over all there are not multiple ways to multiple gods there is one god on high And this God made all things and rules over all things. Even the highest thing you can imagine, even the stars on high, the universe that is so massive is under him. During the French Revolution, many people were trying to remove, get rid of Christianity forever. And and, and on one very clear night, an, an atheist boastfully proclaimed his belief to a poor peasant. Everything will be abolished, he said. Churches and Bibles and clergy. Yes, even the name of God itself. We we will remove everything that speaks of religion. And the the peasant gave a, a quiet chuckle. So the atheist wanted to know why the believer was laughing. And the peasant pointed up to the stars in the sky and said, well, I was just wondering how you're going to manage to get all those bright lights out of the sky. One God. One Lord of heaven and earth. One God above all. And you, you have to realize how important that was for this people, so immersed and surrounded by cultures who prayed to every God, but we wouldn't know anything about that. One God. And this God overall made a promise to them and a promise to us. Continuing on, verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. 
we were separated from the God who made all things and who rules over all things when we fell into sin. All right? We were separated from that God when we fell into sin. But this God over all was going to redeem, rescue, and rebuild everything that went wrong in the fall. All the things that are broken in our lives by sending someone into this world to make everything new again. And God did that by choosing Abram. Choosing Abraham to have a son, and from that son, a nation of people who would live in a different way, and also who would live in a certain land that he would give them. And from that land, from that nation, who was living in a certain way, from them would come a Savior who would be born in the world, who would make everything new again. Now, that nation of people messed up terribly. But God still kept His promise to them. Why? Very simple answer. Because He is righteous. He kept His promise to them, not because of what they did, because He's righteous. God kept, in fact, God kept every promise to Abraham. Son, nation, land. And that's why all of us can know that God is going to keep the final promise that he made as well. And that's the promise of Jesus. God is faithful even when we have been unfaithful. I want you to, I want you to just think of that phrase and that idea as I now read the rest of this longer psalm of confession and worship to you. Okay, that God is faithful even when we have been unfaithful. You're going to see the history. This is going to be a review of everything we've been doing since September. Um, But I want you to think about your own life, how God is faithful even when we aren't. Verse 9. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. 
Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. God is faithful, even when we have been unfaithful. Do you see Jesus there? He has been there all along, from the very beginning. He is the Word, present in creation, the giver of life. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abram. He is the pillar of fire that guided them in the wilderness. He is the word given to them on Mount Sinai. He is the Sabbath rest. He is the bread from heaven. He is the water of life. He is the one who is bringing forgiveness. Through and through. The text speaks for itself. It's a sermon in and of itself. I I don't really even need to explain it to you. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. So we're going to look at today four promises of God's faithfulness that that God's people can take to heart and and give thanks and worship God for. Number one, 
God does not abandon His people and He is always aware of their circumstances. God does not abandon His people and He is always aware of their circumstances. Um, Time after time we heard as we read this text that God saw their affliction and heard their cries. Time after time throughout the history of the Old Testament people, God was very much aware of their circumstances and He did not abandon them in those circumstances. So, no matter um, what kind of a mess you came from to get here today, no, no matter, no matter um, what your life circumstances are at home, God is not unaware. I'm not naive. I know, I know that, that heartbreak surrounds us all the time. As a pastor, I am, I am well aware of the, the tragedy and, and hardship of life. I know that we are coming in here a bit banged up. I know that some of you are are disappointed in in how life has turned out. I know that some of you are exhausted in in marriages, in in your marriages right now, and and maybe even picking up the pieces of, of one that is blown apart. I know that I know that some of you are, are desperately uh, worried about your children and what's going to happen to them if they don't make the right choices. I know that some of you are desperately worried about your friends who, who haven't made the right choices and uh, who don't have hope. I know that, that some of you are, are just so frustrated just trying to make ends meet. Or, or, or trying to do well at school. Or, or just trying to have something go your way. I know that some of you just feel beaten because you keep losing that battle to yourself and your own destructive thoughts. The promise we have here is that God is not unaware. There isn't a a tear in this room. There isn't a pain in your heart that God doesn't know all about. There isn't a thing that you're going through that God is not unaware of. And, And on top of that, not only is God aware of what you're going through, but He is not going to abandon you to go through that alone. God does not, um, God is not asking you to walk that path alone. God is not going to abandon you to do that without His help. And and we see that time and time throughout the history of His people. In Psalm 23, probably familiar with that one. In Psalm 23, the psalmist says that he is not afraid to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God does not abandon His people. And he knows. He's very much aware of your circumstances. Number two, God guides and instructs his people. God guides and instructs his people. Is anyone besides me a little bit jealous that God gave them a pillar of fire to guide them through life? 
Is that, am I the only one jealous about that? I mean, how cool would that have been, right? Just having a pillar of fire to show you every move that you are to make, every decision you are to make. Kind of like that, I don't know if you've seen that commercial on TV. It's a fidelity commercial um, where you just you follow that green line around, right? Shows you where to go through life, and then all of a sudden um, you're retired and you have millions of dollars. I mean, wouldn't it be kind of neat to have like a, a little green Jesus line that, could, uh, that you could follow through life that would show you exactly what to do and what decisions to make and where to go? Um, better yet, a pillar of fire. And as soon as you see it move, you just kind of follow after it. We think, wouldn't that be awesome? Well, God didn't only guide them with a pillar of fire. We, we see that from the text. God gave them his word to instruct them. And, and he gave them... I mean, he, gave it, he, he made a big deal about that, giving it to him on a mountain. He gave them his word to instruct them, and he gave them prophets to constantly share that word with them. And behind and underneath all of that, he gave them his Holy Spirit to, in, to instruct them and give them instruction through that word of God. Same as he has done with us. We have the Holy Spirit giving us guidance and instruction through the Word of God. So, we have His Word to instruct us. And remember, Jesus is the Word. And you've been hearing me tell you for weeks now how important it is to be in the Word. It connects you with Jesus. It strengthens your faith. And it gives you guidance for life. But here's the thing. It is possible for you to know this thing this Bible, cover to cover. You can even have it memorized but not have an answer for, well, do I take this, this new job in this new city or stay in my current one? Do, um, do we buy this house or that one? Uh, do I go to university in, in Toronto or Montreal? Right? So there are certain things that this might not help you answer. And secondly, you can have this thing learned cover to cover, have it memorized, but still not live your life in a way that shows that you do. Okay? So God has not only given us his word to instruct and guide us. He's given us a community of faith. He has given us one another. And friends, that is why we gather in small groups. Not just to listen to the Word of God, but to help each other apply it to our lives and live by it. So that we can be with people who know us and love us and who can speak godly wisdom into our lives. So when the Bible doesn't answer for you, should I take the job in this city or that one? Someone who knows you and loves you can ask you questions like, well, uh, how are your spiritual needs going to be met there? H have you found a, a church that, that teaches and preaches and lives according to the truth there? Or, or when that high school um, senior um, wonders, well, which university should I go to, this one or that one? Um, people who know that person and love that person can ask them questions like, well, how is that school going to help you along in your relationship with God? Is, is there a church nearby that you can get connected to? Um, who's going to be mentoring you? Who's going to be encouraging you while you're there? 
and questions like that. Do you see, when we spend time in God's Word with one another, we learn and we, we listen, we learn, and, and we get Jesus-centered instruction from one another. So that's for the first thing. For the second thing, it helps us with our blind spots. All right? It helps us with our blind spots. Each of us are prone to, you name it, selfishness, greed, anger, uh, materialism, and, and, and various failures that become blind spots for us. Okay? We can't see them. That's why they're called blind spots. So we need others around us to lovingly, I stress lovingly, because no one likes their blind spots being pointed out to them, but to lovingly help us see our blind spots. Okay? It's like this. Um, if, you, if you remain isolated, right? If you only keep to yourself, if, 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 you, uh, if you only keep to yourself, you won't be able to see the inconsistencies in your life. Make sense? Okay, if, if you, like, you're, you're reading the Bible, but if you, if you only keep to yourself, you won't see those inconsistencies. So you can know that Bible cover to cover, but you don't realize that you abuse your spouse. Or you don't realize that you're an alcoholic. Or you don't realize that, that you're a, a greedy, materialistic a person who, who, who doesn't even think twice about the things of God during the course of their regular day. Or you're, you're just a very harsh and abrasive person to be around or whatever the case may be. You don't see it because there's no one there to share that with you. So if, if we keep only to ourselves, if, if we don't exist in community at all, we're not going to see our blind spots. We're not going to recognize those inconsistent. Th- those things don't make sense. When I love Jesus, when I'm growing in His Word, it doesn't make sense to live life like that. But I'm not going to see it unless I have a loving Christian brother or sister at my side to help me see that. So that's why we need to be with each other. That's why uh, we need to gather with each other in, in our small groups so that, so that our that our loving brothers and sisters can give us faithful instruction and advice, Jesus-centered advice from the Word of God. And, and, when, we, and when we are spending time in God's Word with one another, we, that's what we get. We get, it. we get that direction. We get that. And, and it's, not just to, it's not just to try to make you guys smarter or to get you know, bigger numbers in Bible study or, or, or to make your Bible study leaders feel good or whatever it is. This is why. This is why it's so important for us at least to be here in worship regularly. But better yet, also to be in those small group Bible studies so that you're spending time with other believers in Jesus. Number three, God provides for His people. Time after time, we see God providing for His people's physical needs. You know, He he gave them... um, he gave them water from the rock, uh, manna from heaven, and He constantly provides. God also provides for us. Okay? He doesn't give you what you want. He gives you what you need. And He, he, doesn't, ba- he doesn't do that based on your perception. He does it based on His perception, which means that sometimes some of you might feel like you've been robbed from God because He hasn't given you something that He hasn't promised to give you. God doesn't owe you anything. 
All right? And, and uh, he doesn't give you good things based on how good of a person you've been either. You don't want what you deserve. Okay? You want what you don't deserve. And the truth is, a lot of times what we get is hardship. Right? But if hardship makes me more dependent on God and less dependent on the trinkety junk of the world, then isn't hardship a blessing from God? Isn't hardship a gift from God? Hasn't God always given his people exactly what is best for them? God provides for his people. And the last one, and the most important one, number four, God is ready to forgive. Our God is a merciful God. God is ready to forgive. He is, as our text says, a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. God's people constantly turned against him. It was hard to read that. God's people constantly turned against him. They trusted in other gods besides the God who had already rescued them and saved them countless times. And many times they even tried giving God's credit to something else. But... In your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Time after time, we disappoint too. We disappoint too. We give God's glory to other things. We put other things first in our lives. We give in to our our most horrible thoughts and desires. But... And the the word is like a big nevertheless there. But God is still ready to forgive again and again. The verse there says, And in your compassion you delivered them time after time. Time after time. I want you to imagine, a little warmer day, I want you to imagine you're sitting on a beach. You're sitting on a beach and you're watching those ocean waves um, crash onto the shore, wave after wave. As you're sitting there watching those waves crash onto the shore, would you ever sit and wonder whether or not the next wave is going to come? Of course not. You know that the next wave is coming pretty much as soon as the last one is left. You know that that all day long those waves are going to continue coming uh, wave after wave, time after time. And that is a picture of God's forgiveness. That's a picture of God's forgiveness. No matter how many sins we have committed, no matter how dirty we've become, those waves of God's grace keep coming, wave after wave, time after time, washing us clean how many times god could destroy us or abandon us but he doesn't he forgives us again and again time after time so here the history of the old testament comes to a close god's people were now um, back in the land of promise after the exile in babylon waiting for the Messiah, waiting for God's time. And 400 years later, when the time was right, the merciful God sent forth 
his son, Jesus, in whom all of these promises were fulfilled. Jesus, in whose cross and empty tomb you and I find and receive and are given the unending forgiveness of a merciful God time after time. Amen. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.